having a conflict is 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 good TV and interesting, and there is conflict of ideas, but it doesn't have to be personal. It doesn't have to be cheap shots, and people don't feel like they uh, are being ambushed. Welcome to the Find Your Calling podcast. I'm Terry Eisman. This Sunday, a very special sit-down with a broadcaster who's left an indelible mark on me. He's interviewed figures like President Trump and California's Governor Newsom, politicos of different sides with a commonality, respect for his reporting. But how does he cut through the partisan noise and manage to foster smart conversation? Here now, Fox 11 anchor Alex Michelson with the answer. Joining me now is the anchor of the 5, the 6, the 7, and the 10 p.m. news on Fox 11 Los Angeles and the host of California's only statewide political show, Fox 11 anchor Alex Michelson. Alex, thank you uh, so much for doling out your time. I know you're a very busy person. Uh, Terry, I would do anything for you. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity. Congratulations to you on the podcast. Uh, We're all proud of you. We're all excited. Um, and you're already booking better guests uh, than than we are <laughs> on your podcast. So I, I, I'm glad that I can even make my way into your podcast, which already has a very high standard in terms. Oh of come on! Oh come on! You, I would, I, I would have you any day, and you have you've made a big difference in in my life, and you know you are such an important sort of storyteller right now as we weather this this coronavirus. So before we get into that, because we have to we have to talk about that. This is like a story that you know you're covering but now you're also living it which is different sure. i think than than most other of your stories but anyways by having you here alex i'm breaking a cardinal rule and i have to i have to justify this because this podcast is really for ucla ucla connected people and you are a trojan uh but yeah. here's here's my justification i want you to see if if this holds up so a couple of weeks ago i had your distant colleague fox business networks kennedy on now she's a bruin but she hosts only one show you're a trojan but you okay. host five shows so does does that does that sway it is that a good justification I guess so you know i actually i really i really actually have a lot of love for ucla you know, I grew up uh, in, in yeah. Agora Hills, and basically all of my friends' parents all were Bruins. Almost all of my teachers were Bruins. Uh, at Agora High School, our um, theme song was the UCLA fight song. Our colors were the UCLA colors. Um, I grew up going to UCLA football games every year and UCLA basketball games. Um, I have uh, a, a lot of love for UCLA. USC just was a much better place for for me personally. I mean, USC has the, the great broadcast Journalism. program and yeah. has um, yeah, and UCLA doesn't. But um, but besides that, I mean, UCLA is a, is a great place, and I, I certainly don't hate uh, UCLA uh, like some other people do. <laughs> of course not. No, I'm I'm glad you said this because now we won't get any bad social media <laughs> as, as yeah, sometimes, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, people tend to do. But anyways, um, I was uh, listening to our podcast that we recorded last time. This is when I was interning for your show. And I, you said something really interesting. So you compared sports and politics, two of your, I guess, favorite topics to, to talk about. And you said something interesting. You said at the end of the day, on, you compared sports to politics. At the end of the day, you move on. Nobody's life is really changed. And now it's like when you compare it to politics, people's lives are being dramatically changed. Was there a moment for you, either in the anchor chair or maybe in the drive-in to work, when you understood that this story would be radically different, that there's no blueprint, and you also don't have your fabulous co-anchor, Christine Devine, sitting right next to you? (laughs) 
Well, let, let's be clear on the on the sports uh, versus politics thing. I was saying that in the instance of sports, things don't radically change. Right, and move on after the game. I wasn't suggesting that that was the case for politics before the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so, was there a moment that I realized this was going to be different? Uh, you know, I, I think it was sort of it, it was an evolution on this story for a lot of us. Um, I, I remember um, I was the timing of this was sort of strange because it was coming right after Super Tuesday, which uh, for those of us that do politics for a living and especially having California on Super Tuesday was such a big focus for almost a year. Um, and, and the week before Super Tuesday, I, I know I was in the field six out of seven days. I had worked, you know, six days a week at least for like two months straight. I mean, this year, think about this year. We had um, the impeachment to start off the year. Uh, and then we had uh, Kobe Bryant died, which is a huge story for us locally. And that right. went on for over a month of tributes and going reporting there and breaking in and doing all sorts of things with that. Uh, we had uh, Super Tuesday um, and everything that went with that. The debates, uh, we hosted a forum at USC with uh, Pete Buttigieg. We'll get to that. We had all sorts of we had all sorts of big, huge events. Um, and so I was like, finally, I'm going to get a day off. I hadn't taken a day off. And it was actually supposed to be that uh, that week that coronavirus started. And on the day that I was about to take a go in and ask for some time off, my boss brought me in and said, we want you to start hosting this new show about the coronavirus uh, with Dr. Drew. And it starts in uh, uh, two days. Um, and I, I was thinking, how are we going to fill an entire half hour just talking about coronavirus? I mean, how is there going to be that much to talk about? I, I didn't grasp it as big as it was. And I went to a wedding that weekend um, in Palm Springs where everybody was having a good time and people were asking me what I was doing. And they're asking me, is this coronavirus a real thing? And I said, I'm going to start doing this show and uh, with Dr. Drew. And everybody's like, what are you going to talk about? Sex stuff. I mean, the love line guy. And, and is there really going to be enough stuff to talk about for a half hour? And then that week, it was insane. And I remember uh, I knew, I think that the night that I was like, whoa, everything's changed was the Wednesday night of that week. Um, Dr. Drew and I were, were sitting there and Dr. Oz was with us that night. We were waiting to go on the air. And in the half hour that we were testing our equipment, um, uh, Tom Hanks tested positive, which was like, whoa, Tom Hanks has this. Uh, Rudy Gobert tested positive for the NBA. The NBA announced that it was closing. Um, and there was one other thing that was like major. And I think the stock market had its, its worst day and like, you know, since depression or something. And, and it just, I think we all looked at each other. There was just this avalanche of news. Um, the, the ratings we got that night were huge because everybody was sort of so desperate for information. I mean, that first week when we were doing, we started this seven o'clock show no other station locally had it. Um, our, our ratings were so big and there was so much interest in it. By the next week, every station in town had it. They just started doing stuff at that time because there was such a need and there was such an avalanche of news. And then from there, it kind of hasn't stopped. I mean, today, the day that we're taping this podcast it, it is, is kind of the first day since that started where there's a bit of a, a, a moment to take a breath. I mean, today's the first day that Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is not doing a press briefing at noon, first day in 42 days that he hasn't done one. Um, and today's, the, you know, the mayor Garcetti's not doing his briefing uh, today. So it, it feels a little bit like, oh, everybody's going to, 
exhale a little bit. The, the Thunderbirds, um, uh, which I'm very familiar with, because one of my best friends used to be a Thunderbird. Um, they're doing a flyover uh, in, in Southern California. And you had a cool video I, yesterday on the kind of, news where you yeah. are inside of one yeah. of those planes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, but that I think, is going to be a big moment of, of exhale and for the community coming together right. that's sort of desperate for some sort of good news and also desperate, Terry, to break up the routine. I think for so many of us, this experience has felt a little bit like Groundhog's Day where it's kind of the same thing over and over and over again, and you can't change up the, the routine. And I think people are, are ready to do something different. Does it feel like that for you, though? Because you go to work every single day. Like you're, I mean, like many, many people in the media business are now working from home. And, you know, it, it does feel like every day is sort of the same, but you're still going into work. You still have to prep for your interviews. Um, does it feel like that for you? Yes. Since you're in this unique position. Yeah. Well, first off, first off, like the, the, the newsroom and going into work is a very, very different place than when you were there just a, a few months ago. I mean, in that building of Fox 11, you know, maybe there was 150, 200 people that used to work in the building. Um, now they're 10. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, it's basically empty. We're not allowed to uh, be anywhere close to six feet from each other. I work in a studio that's completely empty. I'm now having to go up to this little dressing room, I guess, slash office where they gave me my own bathroom. So I don't even go see people by the, by the bathroom. At least that's um, a silver lining. The experience. <laughs> yeah, no, I no, I actually like sort of running into people. I mean, I know. The, the, the experience of going to work is not what it used to be. I'm doing the news in, in a studio by myself. I have nobody um, to sort of bounce ideas off of. So that doesn't feel the same. Um, what I miss, though, is is one, I miss going into the field, which is my real passion, um, right. and sort of how that breaks things up, going into different communities, talking to different people, feeling things in a different way. It's one thing to interview somebody via Skype or via Zoom, but when you're there in their space, seeing something, hearing something, feeling something, trying the local food out, talking to people um, is different. And what I really miss also, Terry, I mean, you, you experienced this for The Issue Is, our political show. The best conversations were usually in the green room. Right. <laughs> the best conversations were usually on in the makeup chair. Um, because those were the moments when people could relax. Now, I'm not saying that we don't do a good job on TV, but but um, you know, uh, you you get a different sense when when people when you have that moment when you aren't on camera, when everybody isn't listening in, and people have a moment to sort of be vulnerable and be a human being and pull you aside and whisper a story into your ear or tell you the gossip or tell you other things that sort of shapes your, your reporting in a way too and you get a, a, a different sense of what's happening and you don't get that now because literally you can't do that you can't uh, be uh, have any guests in the studio so everything's via zoom everything's on camera everything's with somebody listening um, and, and so that sort of intimacy is is gone um, not to be saying you can't do good stuff that other way but but it's it, different it, it's it, radically it not, different it's not as, it's not a, it's not as good i mean the the advantage though of course is yeah. that it has allowed us to book people um in a way that we probably wouldn't be able to because one everybody's home and two it's a much easier ask to ask somebody, hey, while well, you're stuck at home anyways and literally can't leave the house, how about turn on your Skype for five or ten minutes and hang out with us versus 
you know, drive an hour in rush hour traffic to West LA, right. sit in hair and makeup for 15, 20 minutes, sit in the green room for another half hour, then we'll walk you out, then you'll do your segment for five, six, seven minutes, and then you go home and have to go through that drive on the way back. But let's you be know, honest. Different, it's a different ask. But let's be honest, Alex, the biggest thing that the guests are missing is your mom's brownies. <laughs> right, right? So that is, because that is true for people that don't know my mom uh bakes yeah. uh and uh, would bake every week for our our guests um cookies and brownies uh that we would have in our green room and that became sort of a thing but now right. of course guests can't uh have that because they're they're not there so it's it's a it's a different it, it is a different experience and i watched um uh, one of the old older not old shows but a show that just actually came up randomly in my youtube feed from um, the week before this started, our last sort of guest panel show, uh-huh. and it is such a different dynamic when you have people in the same space able to f- sort of freely talk uh, amongst each other, or freely interrupt each other, or joke with each other. It's the energy. Versus, I you think. have a bunch of people on 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 Skype. I mean, there, there's there there are technical challenges. You can't just have people yelling over each other via Skype, and some people have a delay, and then there's mic issue. I mean, it's just a different. It's a different beast, but um, you know, in, in the in comparison to the real issues that people are having with their jobs and and not being able to work at all, and all the frustration and anger and confusion over this, that's really kind of a minor issue. Right. You know, I think one thing that people notice about you when watching you on the air is that you're very comfortable. And now, and I think recently you said something like, my Instagram live stories have helped me, you know, ad lib. And even when, when there's no prompter, I want to talk about whether, whether or not that was true for you when you just started out, because your first on air gig was at age 21. You were in San Diego, away from your parents. What what was that first experience like for you? Because obviously the job market's totally different now, and, and I think students should should know you know what it, what it was like and maybe how they can adapt. So the question is, was I comfortable at twenty one? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, no, no, I mean, look, I think I always have had a certain degree of comfort, and even when I started, um, I, I had done a lot of stuff in school. You know, I mean, I had, I had hosted a show on, right. on USC. Um, I hosted. Four different shows at USC. Uh, I had been doing at least a weekly show, if not by my senior year. I think I was hosting three different shows, three different nights of the week. I was doing live TV. Mm-hmm. I had interned a lot, so it wasn't um, like totally starting from scratch. Um, but in terms of, it, it was a bit of a you know you, you the, the more you do it, of course, the better you get at it. Yeah. Um, I, I think the the thing that that. When I started out, I, I thought in terms of doing live shots or other things, it was it was easier to talk about something that you know, uh, and it was also easier if if you can. Advice I would have for people is um, simplify it. You know, uh, a lot of young people, and I've said this to you when when you were doing your your stand ups, which is when we're on camera and oh talking gosh. to the camera, my first to one, something that yeah, that um, well, yeah, that well, one thing a lot of people when they're younger do they think okay, this is my opportunity on camera, I have to do you know forty five seconds and remember every single line the way that I wrote it, and the reality is you're better off doing a sentence doing because all you're really going to use really are seven to ten seconds anyways yeah. and like nailing that no uh, you know totally so do that do that well uh do you know so uh and for me i i found it helpful when i was starting off to like 
do a lot of movement or other things because then that would help me remember. Okay, uh, point to that because that that'll keep me if I if I trigger something triggers I'll I'll remember that. Right. Um, but uh, you know, obviously, it's like a it's a process. I mean, I think reading off a teleprompter, which is kind of mocked, but is like is a skill. I mean, I, I don't I still don't think I'm great at it, but I was not that good at it even when I started at Fox 11 as an anchor because I had not been a five day a week anchor um, until I started here. I mean, I was doing it two days a week as, in San Diego and I, and I actually was very comfortable because that show was very personality driven and I really liked it. But then I went to ABC seven as a reporter for seven years and I'd anchor here or there on the weekend, you know, maybe I'd anchor six, seven times a year. Um, but that doesn't compare to the sort of rhythm that you get by doing it over and over and over and over again. And I think right. Practice from is a skill key. perspective of yeah. just like reading off the prompter. I'm way better, way better at it now than I was a year ago. But I still have, you know, ways to go. I don't I don't think that for me is my strongest skill set. I think I'm better at other stuff, but uh, I'm learning. And I, and I watch and I think that worked or that didn't work and, and sort of trying to figure it out as I go along. If I could just backtrack for a second in terms of just navigating the workplace, because you had some challenges when you were starting out, right, in, in your first um, reporting gig in San Diego. I, some, I remember you told me that some folks there resented you um, in a way mm-hmm. in the beginning. What advice would you give to, to young to young you know, students and, and to people who want to enter any, uh, any sector for that matter, what advice would you give to them about overcoming and thriving despite people resenting you? And talk a little bit about your experience too, because I think it's salient. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was hard. Look, I started in San Diego uh, at, at a station that had just lost its Fox affiliation and became the CW. There was a lot of concern about the future of the station. There was a right. weird, uh, set of circumstances that led me to be the weekend anchor two weeks after I started there at age 21 when other people that had been there 10, 15 years and were 20, 25 years older than me were overlooked. So naturally that sets up for me to not be the most popular kid in the class. Um, I think the only, the, the, the advice that I would have in that scenario is to kind of Why were you unpopular uh, then? down. Were you, were you, well, quote unquote, it, too aggressive no, no, be, or too whatever? No, I mean, I, I probably was, but um, yeah. I, I think the, the real reason is that, you know, it's, it's like, you know, sort of like a young kid that comes in and takes your job and you think, what the hell are they doing and what do they know? You know, I mean, right. I, I was making my rookie mistakes. I mean, most of these people had worked uh, for years in smaller markets to sort of pay their dues and get to that point. And then all of a sudden when their this anchor job opens up that they think that they're due, this random person comes in. They should get it and, and hear it. you walk in, yeah. Um, I mean, how does that not set up uh, for like, huh? Conflict. Yeah. Um, so I, I think what, what what you can do is keep your head down, try, try as much as you can not to be arrogant, invest in mentors, um, spend a lot of time listening asking people about their life stories, asking them about how that you can do it better, um, trying to work harder than anybody so that nobody can complain that you don't work hard enough, um, volunteer to do the things that other people don't want to do, uh, work the early morning weekend shift, work the late night shift, work the holidays, do other things that can be favors for people, find ways to, if somebody, you know, offer your 
soundbite to somebody else that, that needs something or see if you can do something, shout them out in social media, show pride for them, um, and do as much as you can to build a network of, of mentors and people that are behind you um, yeah. as compared to um, could could be the, the opposite. And I think that right. I think is 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 valuable. Um, in that process. You know, a journalist who I look up to, Megyn Kelly, she says, work so hard they can't ignore you, which I think is is so vital, especially in this kind of ultra-competitive field where there are so many journalists out there vying for the same spots, and yet there are only a finite uh, number of positions, especially now, you know, when, when everybody wants to be like a social media influencer or something on broadcast, it, it's tougher. That's a whole, and that's a whole different deal too, right? The right. social media influencer and what is that? Right. What does that look like, and how do you do that, and all, all of that? It's uh, it's it's definitely complicated. You spoke on the power of mentorship just a couple of uh, seconds ago, and last week both of us interviewed Wolfgang Puck, and uh, yeah. very very funny story. I I interview him, and then in the middle of the interview, I get a text message from his uh, communications secretary, and she says to me, "Guess who's coming up?" And I said, "Who?" Alex Michelson. <laughs> I was like, how'd that, how'd that happen? Um, so, but anyways, when I interviewed la- him last week, he talked about how important his mentor was to him and being indi- you know, indispensable to his success. And I know you had an excellent mentor who helped you um, sort of rise the, you know, the, the totem pole of, of this business. Can you tell me about him? Sure. Uh, well, I've had a lot of mentors, but I think you're probably asking about Conan Nolan, right? Right. Yeah, so, NBC Four uh, political uh, reporter Conan Olin, Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's the, he's the political reporter at, at Channel Four. I started uh, at uh, Channel Four as an intern. Right. Um, the first time around, I was maybe a sophomore at USC, and, and he taught me a lot of things. First off, I remember the first day I told him I was going to USC, and I was a uh, uh, majoring in broadcast journalism and and political science. And he said, "Never say it that way again." Say you're majoring in political science and broadcast journalism. There's so many journalism students um, that learn how to talk but don't have anything to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he was somebody I think who was who was so gracious and genuine and uh, wanting me to succeed, and yeah. also so secure in his job because he had been there for so long and didn't view me as a threat. Uh, and and so he allowed me to do a lot of things to go out into the field and go interview Arnold Schwarzenegger to go out and uh, sort of wouldn't be your last time pieces interview wouldn't be yeah. my last time no but yeah. I mean um, it, it 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 is it was really a, um, uh, he taught me so many different things I think something else he taught me that I'll that I'll always remember that I think is a really good way to think about a relationship with bosses mm-hmm. is that. You know, a news director who is the boss in a newsroom, but this could apply to anybody's business. Um, they like imp- they think of their their job like they have a desk and there are problems that keep piling up, and you can either be somebody that takes away those problems or somebody that adds to it. And if you're somebody right. that solves some of those problems and makes their load less, you're probably going to be a pretty uh, uh, well. Uh, received employee. If, uh, if you're one of those people that adds problems and makes their job harder, uh, then it's not probably not going to go that well for you. Um, so that I think is, is sort of the way that I think of sort of my relationship with bosses period is, is finding a way to be a problem solver, not a problem creator. <laughs> um, and I think that's an important way to frame things. He also was somebody that was, 
um, I think a big believer in, in something that I believe in, which is that the, the job itself is a marathon and not a sprint. Mm. Um, and so, yes, you can have sort of a, a flash in the pan moment of anger or burn some bridge and get a headline for a few hours. But in reality, like it's a small world. Politics is a small world. The broadcast business is a small world. And people remember the way that you treat them. Um, so if you treat yeah. them well, um, they'll, they'll be there to help you. I mean, there's sometimes this feeling that like everybody in the field has got to be so competitive. And what you realize is, look, right. there's going to be days where, you know, Channel 2 gets there first. There's going to be days that Channel 11 gets there first. There's going to be days that Channel 7 gets there first. And yes, some of that can be, you know, got to keep your exclusives and do that. But there's even more value in, in, in really there's like, a bigger okay, picture. Help it, helping your competitor yeah. when you can, being kind when you can, so that when you're not the one that gets there first, they help you as well. Um, and so I thought Conan's uh, sort of ability to be respectful of people on both sides of the aisle and treat everybody pretty well and, and be um, fun and warm with everybody um, allows him to keep those relationships going with both sides for decades. Um, right. Because it's 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 even harder now, Terry, than it, it must have been for somebody like Tim Russert, who was like one of my heroes, you know, with Meet the Press. And Tim Russert, think about Tim Russert. He was hosting Meet the Press at a time when cable was not as big as it is now. He was getting, you know, five, six, seven million viewers a week watching his show. Um, he was number one by a mile. And so if people were interested in politics, they kind of had to go on his show. Right. Uh, they didn't have all the social media. They couldn't promote themselves as much. You know, now people don't need to go on as much. Uh, they they can ignore you. They can if they really want to. Um, right. And so you've got to be able to have a connection with them or create a reason why somebody would want to take time out of their day to sit and do your podcast. Uh, you know, or uh, whatever. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> um, and, and some of that, and yeah. some of that is, you know, re relationship uh, building over time. And uh, and and uh, so I, I learned that from from Conan um, as well. No, that that's an important thing, and I I think you're so right about the fact that this world is so interconnected. Because just when you think, oh, maybe you've like escaped that person or maybe you don't have to deal with some you know some aspect of the industry here it is it's right you know you have to you have to make sure that you don't really bring your bridges and and have good relationships with everybody and give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes i don't think we we do that enough um i want to ask you though because conan so you you started interning for him when you were at usc and recently you had this full circle moment where you went back to usc walked in into an auditorium packed with thousands of students and uh you were interviewing pete Buttigieg. unfortunately i couldn't make it for that but can you tell me about that day i know it took a lot of time and effort to get him there it did. Uh, that was something we were working on for, I don't know, a year or so. I mean, right. I always, when I was at USC, there was uh, Chris Matthews of, of MSNBC, God rest his soul, now that he's off TV. Uh, he did a series called the Hardball College Tour, which I thought was really cool, where he would bring some of these leading presidential or senatorial figures to different college campuses, and there would be a marching band there, and it felt like a big event. Um, and at one point he brought that to USC as well. 
and they mm-hmm. did it at Bovard Auditorium. At one point, I think Jim Cramer did his show Mad Money from USC's Bovard Auditorium when I was there. That was like a big deal when he was there. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, like, how cool would it be to do our own version of that with um, with the presidential candidates and to bring them to USC and to make it big and make it feel like an event and not just uh, me, but but incorporate student questions and so uh, Bob Schrum, who is a regular on our show um, and I've become friends with, is the director of the political, the Dornsife Center for the Political Future at USC. And so I said it to him in one of those green room conversations uh, off camera when we were having a moment to enjoy our cookies and brownies together and, and have a moment to catch up. I said, hey, Bob, what if we did something like that at USC? And he was really interested and he took it to the highest levels and got approval from his um, president of the university and I took it to the highest levels and got pr- approval from the president of the network. Uh, everybody was sort of excited about this concept, but then it was like, okay, what about the candidates? <laughs> you can't do it without them. So we reached out. We're like, well, we don't want necessarily, um, y- you know, uh, Marianne Williamson got, you know, all great for Marianne and probably would have been an interesting conversation, but you know, we had 25 candidates at the time and it was going to be expensive. It was going to be tens of thousands of dollars for USC per. So we said, all right, well, let's do the top five candidates and ask them and we'll see if any of them respond. And uh, Bernie Sanders campaign did. And they said, uh, you know, let's do it. Um, and they, but they responded, uh, I remember the campaign called me on a Sunday and said, can we do this on Friday? (laughs) have like four days notice so at Bovar the auditorium where we want to do it was booked so we had to look for another venue and we went through this whole process and we spent an entire week we we changed up the whole schedule of everybody that worked for us and we did these walkthroughs and we spent two full days at USC planning for this thing and we announced it and we put out a press release with us and the Bernie Sanders campaign and we mm-hmm. started running ads on TV yeah. and then two hours later Bernie Sanders has a heart attack and uh, cancels all of his uh, future events. And it was like, oh. I remember I was supposed to start interning the day before. Well, and I did start interning the day before. And I remember getting that alert on my phone, Bernie Sanders suffers heart attack or something that looks like a heart attack. And, And I thought, wow. You must be so upset. Yeah. I was. I was well, really. No, I was really upset for you, to be honest, because I know how I hard was, you worked on. Well, that. I was more. I was more concerned for him and his health. And right, and of course, I, I was actually. I was surprisingly okay with it. I. I, I thought that he would do it in the future, um, and I. I just. I was kind of proud that we were able to make it happen so fast. And I didn't. Yeah. Uh, part of me like never really wanted to believe that it even was going to happen. Cause I'm so used to being disappointed with stuff. So uh, surprisingly I was like, really, I was okay with it more than I would thought I would be. But yeah. Um, so we tried, so we're like, okay, well, Bernie, when you come back, like, let's do it. And they never would, they never committed to it. And, and, you know, and I don't think it was that Bernie's team was trying to avoid us or anything. It's just presidential, um, yeah. Scheduling is a really, really complicated puzzle piece. And it's hard to get them to commit to something that they don't absolutely have to do, especially if they've got, you know, to get, give up an hour and a half or something like that to do it in one location. That's a lot for um, for a presidential campaign when they could spend that time fundraising or doing an event on five different stations or doing other things. It's a, kind of a big ask. So yeah. we, we kept asking Bernie. They never said yes. Um, and then I kept asking Pete's campaign, who I had known them really well. One of my really good friends was sort of an unofficial member of Pete's campaign. And he was pushing and pushing and pushing. And right. Pete's press secretary had said to us 
I think in um, August that she was she liked the idea and want, was going to make it happen. Um, but then for like five, six months, never did. We were on four or five different calls. Anyways, it was like the la- his last trip to L.A., the last chance that he could possibly do this. They event- they said, no, we're not going to have it happen. Um, and then I had thrown in the towel and, and my boss, Pete, said, well, if you happen to change your mind, we'll find a way. And thank God that he did. Because we got a, yeah. a message from them, like just days before the thing, saying, uh, "Well, we've changed our mind. Can we still pull this off?" <laughs> and we, we did in in like three days' yeah. notice. We pulled off this this event, and then to walk out um, to on my sort of home stage um, with all the, the the Trojans there and Pete Buttigieg on stage, and to have my parents in the audience and my friends in the audience, and to 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 sort of make that vision happen, I think was one of the proudest days I've ever had um, in, in my career because it was really a fulfillment of so many different aspects of my life that, you know, the decision to go to USC, investing in broadcast journalism, investing in political science, the, you know, the idea of like there I had a political show and now I'm doing a political show that I started in LA on that stage with a major presidential candidate, but a presidential candidate who also is younger and more similar to me than probably the rest of them are. Um, it just felt like a real big moment, you know, and then and yeah. now you look back on it and, and I actually looked at some of that footage recently and it just feels like such another time. You know, the, this idea yeah. of first off the campaign itself, the his campaign, um, a packed auditorium full of people, uh, the the idea of like doing all of that. And it was such a success and, and so much fun. And USC was so happy with it that we were like in talks about, do we do this as a series with thought leaders or do we do Do we have Hillary Clinton come in there? Do we have Michelle Obama? Do we do we do something else big? And of course, um, all of those conversations have stopped right. because the idea of doing big events like that have stopped. And I miss I miss events. I do. But what was the behind of scenes of that? What was Pete Buttigieg like in person? You know, Pete Buttigieg is probably way more low key than any other politician that I've met. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember there was a, there was a moment uh earlier in the year where we were invited to interview him in West Hollywood at a hotel. And usually when you're around presidential candidates, there's a giant sort of hubbub of people and activity. And, and we were told, okay, we're going to bring you into this room and you can set up and then we'll bring him in. And we go into this room and, and he opens the door and he's there by himself and it was just like us in this hotel room. We had like 10 minutes to set up. So it was just like me and him. And he's like, okay, okay, good, good, good. Yeah, okay, good. Uh-huh. He's, he's very sort of to the point, matter of fact. Uh, he is a bit like a military guy. He's very Midwestern. Yeah. He's not um, like a Joe Biden who's like, hey, man, how are you? Good to see you. What's going on? And like grabs you and... <laughs> That reminds me of the time my mother used to say this and my daddy had an expression. Like that's not Pete, that's not Pete Buttigieg. It's right. not who he is. You know, they right. all have their own their Style. own unique characteristics. Yeah. Bernie is grumpy, you know, and, and he's either in a good mood but he or he's loves in a you. bad mood. He's I, a, I think he likes yeah, you. I mean I guess, but but yeah. but he, he he you know, but he he's moody. He can yell at reporters, he can yell at his right. staff, he can um he, he has moments, but uh, you know, there's 
you know, and all of them have their own characteristics. Beto O'Rourke was, could not have been nicer. I mean, probably the nicest guy out of all of them. Cory Booker was, was fun and pretty nice, um, in the process. I mean, all of them sort of have their own way. Elizabeth Warren, you see her like always jogging. She's like always moving literally like that woman does not stop. It's, it's amazing. I remember we were at the debate and she literally was going from one interview to the next and like, oh my goodness, she has so much yeah. energy. Yeah, Where did so she, she get has that? a lot of energy. And then, <laughs> and then there's, you know, they all, and then President Trump can be uh, very charming uh, in person and yeah. um, funny and, uh, and and warm in his own way. Um, if if yeah. you talk to him in person, I think he's can be very different behind the scenes than people see him on TV, um, which I think is confusing for a lot of people when they actually meet him. You know, as we kind of start to wrap things up, um, you've interviewed from a distance, of course, the president and people like Tommy Lauren and Adam Schiff, people from all kinds of political persuasions. I mean, you can get anyone into that studio, and I think you will have a very good, meaningful, enriching discussion. It's true. I've watched it in person. I can attest to it. And I think everyone at home can, too. Um, just as we wrap things up, you know, for, for people who want to enter public policy and, and maybe journalism... How do they get people, even people maybe with whom, you know, if they bring them together, maybe they'll have a conflict. How do they get them to, to respect you as a journalist, you know, especially when there's so much vitriol now and I feel like everyone's against each other, but you're so respected by both sides. How does a journalist accomplish that in today's day and age when there's so much acrimony? Um, you know, that's complicated because, you know, they're... People will say, I mean, I get people say, well, you're not tough enough. You got to start asking the tough questions. You got to, and, and. Um, I think people don't a, really real, watch because you do, you do ask a lot of tough questions. You just do respectfully. You're not like firing, right. you know, you're not just con confronting. So here, 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 here's, here's what, yeah. I, what I've found. And I certainly don't have the, the key to it, but what I've found for myself is I think when people feel like they are being uh, respected yeah. and heard and they don't feel like they're being ambushed. They don't feel like they're they're that you're trying to go for a gotcha moment. They don't feel like they're you're manipulating them because yeah. there are people in the media that do that, um, and there are people that are looking sort of for the jugular. I, I don't see it that way with anybody. I, I my in my ideal world, if if I'm like up on a, a mountaintop, uh, getting to to do things exactly as I want, it would be like a smart discussion where. Both sides feel like they're heard, that they got to make their best argument, and then it's up to the sort of viewer to decide. I mean, we've had I've had good discussions with where you know Tommy Lahren and Lisa Bloom share out the uh, the thing and both tell me that they really appreciated the opportunity. Right. You know, it's it's okay to disagree, but you don't have to be disagreeable in the way that you disagree. Um, right. Having a conflict is 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 good TV and interesting, and there is conflict of ideas. But it doesn't have to be personal. It doesn't have to be cheap shots. And people don't feel like they uh, uh, are being ambushed. And I think if people do feel like you're going to represent them fairly, that doesn't necessarily mean you're representing or taking their side, but right. you're representing them fairly. I think then there is a, a, a degree of trust that is developed. And then when you do have that trust people then open up and maybe give you some things that they wouldn't give to other people when they have those walls up. You know, especially for some of those long-form one-on-one interviews, oftentimes the, the best stuff you will get is, you know, 15, 20 minutes in, 
when people start to feel a comfort level. That's for us, like, with the issue is, the, the, the political show we do, you know, we don't do it live. And there's great value in doing live TV, and I like live TV, and now I'm doing live TV every night with this 7 o'clock show and live guests. But uh, there's value sometimes in rolling tape and letting somebody talk. Um, because so many people, they go on these cable news shows, and the cable news shows are really about uh, showcasing the host, they're not really about showcasing the guest. It's the Rachel Maddow show. It's not the Rachel Maddow listens. <laughs> right. It's Hannity is the name of the show. Uh, so people are tuning in because they want to see Hannity. Right. That's the. That's, that's an the opinion brand. show. Um, and and but it's an yeah. opinion show. But it's also really a showcase. Um, right. And so I think our right. show show tries to be more of a showcase of of the guest, and uh, so that means um, not cutting them off and letting them sort of have finished their sentence and sometimes that means editing them down because they ramble on and on but uh sometimes you'll find gems in that ramble uh that that you wouldn't have if you had the sort of the intensity of of cutting them off so now i'm doing sort of both things at the same time and kind of getting the, the best of both worlds i think but um a lot of it, it and, and and some of it also terry and, and you do this i mean uh as well if not better than i do um, it's the idea of after the interview, sending a thank you note, sending links, sending appreciation, sending checking in with people when you don't want something from them, um, sending them stuff that you find interesting, watching their stuff and complimenting their stuff or retweeting their stuff or, you know, commenting on their Instagram posts or stuff when you don't need something so that when you do, it feels more organic, more natural, more um in sort of in concert of a constant conversation that you're having versus just, I want something. A big thank you to Alex Michelson. Check out his political show, The Issue Is, Friday nights at 10.30 p.m. on Fox 11 Los Angeles and follow him on Twitter at Alex underscore Michelson. Thank you for listening. Please hit the subscribe button, stay healthy, and I'll see you next time right here on Find Your Calling.